Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for the gift of your word. Lord, I, I pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would open your word to us, give us understanding, use it to transform us and to draw us ever near to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. You can grab a seat. Well, again, good morning. We are in the midst of our summer series, um, which is uh, Encounters with Jesus, uh, Discovering God's Love for the lost. And so basically what we're doing each week is we're looking at these different encounters that people had with Jesus uh, in the Gospels. And really our desire, our goal as we do this together is that we uh, would see Jesus' heart and that we would become people who have that same heart for the people in our lives. And so we're just looking through uh, week to week these different encounters with Jesus. And so we're going to do that again this morning. If you want to go ahead and open up uh, your Bible to our Gospel reading this morning, we just heard from Matthew chapter 8. You can turn to verse 28, Matthew 8, 28. If you need a Bible, you can grab one from the seat back in front of you, or you're welcome to use your Bible app on your phone. Matthew 8, verse 28. So um, last week, um, my kids and I were uh, kind of driving around the heights, and we drove past this park. It's a little park over here off of Yale Street called Milroy uh, Park. And uh, we just hopped out. We're the only ones there. It was a great little um, kind of surprise, fun, daddy, kid time um, in the middle of our week. And as we were kind of entering into it, there's a little community center right there in Milroy Park. And as we walked down kind of the sidewalk past the back of it, I noticed there was this little teeny plaque uh, on the side of, um, of the community center. And on the plaque, it said, uh, built in 1938 uh, by the Federal Works Agency uh, under President um, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And um, I just, I kind of stood there and I looked at that. I love history. I'm kind of a history geek. And so I just began to imagine like the construction of this park in, in the 30s and like what it was, must have been like to be a part of the, you know, people just hanging out there. So just imagining, you know, people from the neighborhood gathering there and uh, just enjoying life, enjoying this peaceful, beautiful little park in the middle of the neighborhood. And so as I was imagining that, it occurred to me that 1938, well, 1938, in two years, basically, uh, the world, or even less than that, the world is going to enter into the biggest conflict um, that we've ever seen in human history, World War II. And so it was just an interesting juxtaposition to think about the fact that these people were kind of hanging out in this park and it was a beautiful, peaceful place, and yet they had no real inkling of what was coming, even a year down the road, that the, the world would be embroiled in this global conflict. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about our, um, our passage this morning. And um, I don't know if any of you have seen um, the movie, uh, The Darkest Hour. Have any of you seen that movie? Won an Academy Award. Gary Oldman plays uh, Winston Churchill. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's awesome. Um, and one of the things they do in the movie is they highlight one of his most famous speeches, um, which was given on June 4th, 1940, uh, about the conflict with Nazi Germany. I just want to read you a little bit of it. He said this. He said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight uh, in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. 
We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Now, Gary Oldman like nailed it. I was struggling, but he totally crushed that speech. It was this powerful moment in the movie. And what happens four years moving into the uh, future is that that speech is realized on the beach, beaches of Normandy, on what we call D-Day. Uh, and so this incredible armada, the biggest amphibious assault in the history of mankind is launched that day. And it was a, a, an invasion fleet. I didn't realize it was this big of 7,000 vessels that were used all total from start to finish, front to back. 7,000 vessels and over 160,000 men landed on the beach that day. Huge, huge undertaking. But it was key. It was a key moment. It was a turning point in the, world, in the war. And it was um, a, a, a real embodiment of what Churchill had articulated. This allied victory was becoming real. And so again, as I read the story of Matthew uh, about, uh, and Matthew about Jesus and his 12 disciples landing on this beach, right? They're landing on this beach on this, along the Sea of Galilee. Um, I, I kind of was holding these two contrasting images in my head. This picture of Milroy Park in 1938 and what took place on the beaches of Normandy uh, in 1944. And as I was thinking about those two contrasting images, um, one of the things that occurred to me is that there's a reality, I think, that's captured in that contrasting image for us as followers of Jesus. There's a truth that's there when you compare these two images. And this is it. It's basically that often we choose to live as if life is taking place in a peacetime park like Milroy, when in reality, life is really taking place in the midst of war that we often encounter life and think about life and go through life thinking as if everything's kind of okay generally, when the reality is that there is a spiritual war raging. And we get a glimpse of that into, uh, into that in Matthew 8. But if you pull back the whole Bible, the Bible itself from Genesis to Revelation really is this unapologetic description of a, a world that is a war zone of a reality that is constantly in conflict. And the New Testament brings that uh, into sharp relief, that conflict, because Jesus, the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels, the Jesus that we're talking about through this series, is actually the Jesus who is a rescuing warrior king, who has entered into this battle to face the evil forces of the world. Now, I'm aware that when we begin talking this way, when we start talking about um, faith and belief and the Bible in terms of, um, of this kind of conflict language, of this kind of war language, a lot of us get uncomfortable, right? We, we kind of squirm in our seats a little bit. And I think that's not without reason. So-called Christians throughout uh, the history of the world have used and abused this truth to their own ends to justify all kinds of behavior, taking up arms and violence in the name of Jesus. But that has nothing to do with Jesus and it has nothing and should have nothing to do with his church. Because this war that's described in the context of scripture is not a war fought between nations. It is not waged between different groups of people because of their religion or their skin color or their nationality. For Jesus, this enemy is not, nor has it ever been, nor will it ever be people. The enemy in this war is not people. I mean, think about what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say about our human enemies? We are to love them. 
We're to love them. So this is not a war against people. Neither is it a war with swords and other conventional weapons. It is a war fought with the radical, unconditional, unrelenting love of God. A love so powerful and so transforming that it can and will overcome evil and sin and death. It is this love that motivated Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer, to secure victory over his enemies, over our enemies on the cross. That's the war we're talking about. The Apostle Paul said this clearly in Ephesians 6. He said, For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Author Paul Middleton said it this way. He said, We face a cosmic war fought against a cosmic enemy with a cosmic outcome fought on a cosmic stage. This is the big picture, right? And this is why this matters, because it is the big picture. So when we come to a place like Matthew 8, we need to understand it's taking place in the context of this broader battle, this war. And so I want us to understand that as we encounter these demon-possessed men in Matthew 8, because it'll help us to understand what's actually taking place there. But even more importantly, I think in this day that we live this day of just increased public vitriol and violence, this, this time when it just seems like people are constantly at each other's throats. I think we need to understand that for us to really comprehend God's love uh, for us and for the people in our lives, we have to understand this reality, that we don't live in a time of peace, that we actually live in a spiritual war zone. We live at a time when we are in the midst of a clash between the kingdom of God and light and heaven and the kingdom of Satan and darkness in the world. And we don't talk about that a lot. But I think that's the reality that we need to really consider this morning, that we live in this time of war. And so again, I want to encourage you to look at Matthew chapter 8. We're just going to kind of work through what happens here because I think um, this is, you know, you've got demon-possessed people, you've got a herd of pigs. um, So that right there is enough to kind of be like, wow, this story is a little bit weird, okay? So we want to kind of go through it, work through it carefully so we can really understand what actually is happening here. So first, let's look together, Matthew 8, 28. When Jesus uh, arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, okay, Um, So Jesus, uh, imagine Jesus and his 12 disciples, they've come across the Sea of Galilee. Just before this, they've come through a storm where Jesus calms the storm, but they've moved from the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And that is a big deal. Uh, Jesus is making a step here that no self-respecting Jewish rabbi would ever take to enter in to a territory of uh, Gentiles, because the territory of Gentiles is, uh, is unclean, uh, as Jews would have thought of it. It's unclean for a lot of reasons. It's unclean because of the fact that they worshiped other gods. It's unclean because they didn't um, enact the Jewish purity law, so they didn't avoid things like pigs. Pigs were unclean. Jews weren't supposed to have anything to do with swine. And here you've got a huge herd of them. Not only that, you've got this Tomb, these tombs, this graveyard laid out before them as they enter into this season, so this, uh, this territory. So you've got all these things kind of stacking up to highlight the fact that what's happened is they've entered into this hostile territory. And so as they come into this territory, it, it is very much like this amphibious assault, right? They're coming up onto the beaches on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And I can only imagine the disciples were absolutely freaking out that day. 
I mean, here they are following their rabbi and he's leading them into a place they should never go and never wanted to go and never thought they would go. And yet here they are. Jesus will be stopped by nothing to accomplish his mission. There's no boundary he won't cross. There's no territory he won't enter. There are no circumstances that are beyond the reach of his rescue mission. And I think that's an important thing for us to pay attention to here, that there is no place Jesus won't go, right? His kingdom mission is driven by this fierce, unrelenting love for us. And there is no place, there is no person, there is nothing that is off limits to him. No one is too broken. No one is too far from him. No one has done anything so bad that he would ever say, forget it, that is too far. We're not going there. Jesus is the one who goes there. And I say that because I think sometimes, whether we'd be willing to admit it or not, in our lives, either we feel this or we have people in our own lives that we feel like they're actually beyond the reach of God. That because of something that we've done, something that we deemed unforgivable, some lie that we believed about ourselves, that Jesus can't actually get to us, that he wouldn't actually want to come to us. That there's people in our lives, maybe in our family, that are so hostile to God, so hostile to the Christian faith, that you would never say this, but there's a part of you that pretty much has decided they're beyond reaching. That Jesus can't reach them. They'll never change. And the reality is that that's not true. That is never true. There's no one who is beyond Jesus. And Jesus never gives up. I think you see that in this, this picture, Jesus entering into this territory that's forsaken, that's beyond reaching. He goes there. So this little invasion force, it lands on the beach. And look what it says next. It says, as they arrived on the beach, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Two men living in a graveyard outside the city who are incredibly violent, so violent that no one can come through that area. The other gospels tell us that the people nearby um, had basically sent them there. They'd actually chained them up just trying to restrain them and keep them away from the city because they were so uncontrollable, so violent, so dangerous. Their lives had become so destructive, in other words, so toxic and broken, the townspeople didn't want to have anything to do with them. They didn't know what to do with them. So they sent them out to live in a graveyard. And we're told this uh, happens because they're possessed by evil spirits, by demons. Now, in the fall, um, as part of our Holy Spirit uh, series that we're going to do, where we're looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, we're going to really press into this more. This idea of evil spirits and demons and all these pictures you see of Jesus casting out demons because it happens a lot in the Gospels. And so we're going to press further into that. But this morning, what I, I just want to highlight a few things I think that are important for us to understand um, about these men who are possessed by demons. And it, I think it shows us three things. And here's the three things. The first one is that evil is real and present. Evil is real and present. Our tendency as modern, enlightened Westerners is to read something like this and try to make sense of it. And the way we try to make sense of it is we either kind of say, it, well, it's just, it was, it was myth. It was what they believed back then. They were uneducated, uninformed people. They didn't understand the way of the world. So they made up things to explain how things work. So we kind of categorize it as myth. Or the other tendency is that we allegorize it, right? 
we make it a metaphor that means something else. It doesn't really mean evil spirits, or that's not really what's going on. That's just kind of Jesus accommodating here so that we can take that and then apply it some other way in our lives today. And what I want to encourage you to do is actually engage with stories like this in the gospel as they are presented, which is that evil is real and present. C.S. Lewis, I think, uh, gave a helpful observation when he said this. He said, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils and demons. He said, one is to disbelieve in their existence altogether. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest and fascination with them. Both of these tendencies are equally um, dangerous. The materialist or the magician are both problematic. And so I think it's important for us to encounter this passage and account for the fact that evil here is real, okay? Second, I would say that evil is personal. Evil is personal. Evil spirits in the gospels and throughout scripture, as they are presented here, are presented as personal spiritual agents possessing consciousness, intelligence, and the will to act and interact with um, the material world to destruction, to that end. That's how they behave. That's what they act. They are personal spiritual agents. They're not just kind of some vague idea of evil. And then third, that evil is powerful. I think that's the other thing that you see when you look at the lives of these men and you try to make them understand what their existence was like based on just the little bit that we're told, that they were cast out from society. They lived among the dead. They were violent against themselves and against others. That They were absolutely being destroyed. Incalculable harm was being done to them and to those who came in contact with them. Evil spirits are powerful. And we need to recognize that. And Jesus comes onto this scene. He enters into this moment and he does battle with real evil in this moment. And as he does it, um, I think one of the things that's important to realize too is that when we talked about this, that we're called to be with him, become with him, become like him and what? Do what he did. And you see that throughout the gospels. I just want to bring that to your attention, that what Jesus does here, he then sends out his disciples at other points in the Gospels to do. And so this is very real, very relevant for us as followers of Jesus today, because evil is real, it is personal, it is powerful, and Jesus continues to do battle with evil, and he invites us to enter into that battle with him. Now, that being said, I think it's important just to say, not every sickness or affliction is caused by a demon. I think that's part of what C.S. Lewis is trying to get at. Don't see a demon behind every bush, right? Or around every corner. Sometimes our circumstances are simply the result of living in a sinful, broken world or the result of our own sin and rebellion against God. But evil spirits are at work in our world. They bring confusion and division and suffering. And if we believe that, if we believe that's true, then what that means for us is that we have to contend with those spirits. We have to contend with real, personal, powerful evil in the world. We have to contend uh, with those evil spirits on behalf of ourselves, but also on behalf of those people in our lives who are still living in a world full of evil opposition that seeks to destroy them and keep them from the life that God wants to offer them in Jesus. And so this should give our prayers urgency. It should break our hearts. It should move us to to all kinds of loving action, just like it did with Jesus. 
And I just want to say, you know, this series, we're not using this word a lot, but we're talking about our heart for those that don't know Jesus, for the lost. Um, evangelism is what it's traditionally called. Evangelism is not about trying to convince other people to believe what I believe, right? And I think this is a great illustration of what evangelism actually is at its heart. It's about joining Jesus in his mission to deliver people out of a world of evil and lies and chaos and invite them into the kingdom of love and life under Christ. That's what evangelism is. It's about truth and forgiveness and healing that's found only in Jesus. And to share Christ with someone then is the supreme act of love, right? Because that's what it is. It's moving them out of this kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light and life. Verse 30. After Jesus um, encountered these demons, it says that some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, Send us into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down this steep bank into the Sea of Galilee, into the lake, and they died in the water. How bizarre, right? (laughs) If you're an animal activist or if you're a bacon lover, I mean, this is a hard passage, right, to deal with. I mean, what, what are you supposed to do with these pigs, right? And here's the deal. To be honest, uh, I read tons of commentaries on this. The reality is no one's exactly sure how or what to make of this, why Jesus does this this way. And there's all kinds of explanations, all kinds of ideas thrown out there. But I don't think it's really the point. Because think about what has happened, right? And I think the pigs highlight this. What's happened with these demons? They're no longer in who? They're no longer in these men. Now they're in these pigs, this herd of pigs that runs headlong into the lake and dies. And I think that's the point, that with a single word, Jesus Christ commanded these demons out of these men, freed them from everything that they had lived under, this oppression, this pain, this violence, this this death among the tombs. He freed them. He sent that out of them. It's no longer in them. Martin Luther's famous victory, A Mighty Fortress, comes to mind. The prince of darkness grim, it says. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Go, Jesus says. And they leave these men. See, Jesus has won the victory over evil. On the cross, he defeated the powers of darkness and death and sin. And so Jesus, in that power, delivers these men from these evil spirits. In Luke and uh, Mark's account of this event, we're told that at least one of the men um, became a, a missionary for Jesus. Isn't that incredible? He wanted to follow Jesus. He said, can I get in the boat and go with you? And Jesus, you know what Jesus said? He said, no, I want you to go and tell your people what God has done for you. See, God had transformed his life, had changed him. Not only had the demons um, been cast out of him, but now he had life in Jesus, the fullness of life in the spirit of God as a part of his kingdom. Now, the truth is, maybe you have, I have not met anyone who was uh, in a situation this extreme, 
when it comes to um, their, uh, their engagement with evil. I haven't encountered someone who was possessed by demons in this way. But I have known the power of evil in my own life. And I've encountered people in whose lives evil has taken hold in all kinds of ways, in ways that are a lot less dramatic than what we see here, but just as destructive. And the truth is that Satan and his followers, they don't really need to show their cards these days. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You ever thought about, well, how come we don't see like more of this? At least I don't see a, a ton of like demon possession like in this extreme way. I'm sure it exists. But have you ever thought, why, why is that? And there's a, a, a great line in the movie Usual Suspects. You, I know you've heard it before from Kevin Spacey. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You ever heard that before? See, why would our spiritual enemy resort to extreme measures when something way more subtle would do? Right? More subtle, but again, just as destructive. So in other words, why would you make someone deranged and crazed when an addiction to pornography will accomplish the same thing, right? Why would you make a public spectacle when seething hidden bitterness and anger is just as toxic? See, Satan and his followers, Jesus says they have strategy. He says they they have a plan that they're carrying out. This isn't just haphazard. Evil is at work in our world and in our lives. And Satan and his followers, they don't need to possess you in order to manipulate you or to distract you. They can do it through all kinds of things, things like materialism, things like naturalism. We don't need God. Things like skepticism and doubt and fear, all kinds of weapons that the enemy brings against us. And that ought to give us pause. That reality ought to give us pause because if we don't believe or take seriously that there is a kingdom of darkness, of evil spirits and spiritual adversaries, then why would we ever work to resist them? Why would we ever take action against them? If we don't contend with them in our own lives, why would we ever contend against them in the lives of others? See, as followers of Jesus, we have to live in this reality. We don't live in peacetime. We live in wartime. We live in a time where we are called to enter into the battle with Jesus. To follow Jesus is to follow him into battle against the kingdom of darkness and evil and to bring the kingdom of God through things like deliverance and healing and proclamation of the truth and forgiveness to do the things that Jesus did. So we need to contend with the evil in our world, to contend as he did for those living in darkness through prayer, through healing, through deliverance, through proclamation, because his kingdom is still invading. His kingdom is still at work and his death on the cross has secured the victory against all the evil that we'll face in this life. Now, I wanna say, if this sounds kind of fringe or radical to you, a little bit extreme, I would say this to you. It's only as radical as something like the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) Most of us don't think radical. Yeah, the Lord's Prayer, that is crazy. Wow, can't do that. The Lord's Prayer, do you remember what it says in the Lord's Prayer? 
It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what this is. That's what's happening here in the land of the Gadarenes with these two men. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into the kingdom of darkness. His will is coming in the world. And so we need to realize that as we gather around this table every Sunday, when we pray those words, that's what we're praying. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That as we pray those words, we're entering into the fray, as it were. We're entering into the battle together. And so I just want to take a few moments. I want us to think about what does that mean, right? What does it mean for us to really enter into this battle with Jesus? For example, what would it mean if we prayed those words, your kingdom come, over our city? What if we faithfully prayed over Houston, your kingdom come, your will be done in Houston as it is in heaven? You know, what's interesting um, in the other accounts in Mark and Luke, we're told that um, a little bit more about the situation with, with these demon-possessed men and what happens in the aftermath. And one of the things we're told is that there was a huge you know, herd of pig, about 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs, Right? but it's also a lot of money. You think about that? Think about the economic impact of 2,000 pigs instantly dying. And so when the people of the city, they came out, they saw what Jesus had done. Isn't it interesting? They're not interested in the miracle. What are they interested in? Jesus leaving. They want him to leave. You know why? Because he's messing with their systems. He's messing with their systems, their economy, their politics, their society, their lives. Jesus is messing with them. Again, there's nothing off limits to Jesus. And it's because there's nothing in our world that's untouched by evil. And so what we see here is that every system, every institution, every aspect of society, it needs the kingdom of God to break in. It needs the shalom of God, as we've talked about before. And so we need to pray, your kingdom come in Houston as it is in heaven. We need to pray to that end that Jesus would mess with our systems and our city and our country and our world. To pray your kingdom come is to pray Jesus would bring true justice and mercy in our city. Especially those that have no voice, those who are forgotten, the poor, the homeless, the oppressed, the trafficked, the unloved, the forgotten kids. Your kingdom come. It means getting into the fray. It means praying that over our city. But not only our city, what would it mean to pray that over your neighborhood? To pray that over the lives of your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors? I want you to know, no matter how good their life looks, no matter how good, how nice the house is, how much the kids smile, how awesome their Instagram feed is, I don't care any of that. The reality is that without Jesus, they have no hope against the kingdom of darkness and evil. They have no hope apart from Jesus. Do we believe that? Are we convinced of that? Their lives are under assault. They are suffering in secret. They are coping in all kinds of ways, but what they need is Jesus. They need his life. And will we be bold enough to join the fray and to love them, to pray for them, to share the good news of Jesus with them. So what are we going to do? Your kingdom come, Lord. What does that look like in the lives of the person that lives next to me, the person who works in the office down the hall from me, the person I encounter in the grocery store? And then finally, what would it look like 
for Jesus' kingdom to come in your life in this way. Because the battle isn't just out there somewhere. It's not just in the lives of other people. It's here. The battle lines go right through the human heart of every single person, right through your heart. There is a battle, even for us as followers of Jesus, raging within us. We are not immune from the attacks of the enemy. And so I just want to propose the possibility that maybe this morning, what Jesus is inviting you to do is to to do just what those men did in the graveyard on the side of the Sea of Galilee. They came before him. You notice that? They came before Jesus. And Jesus healed them. He delivered them. He rescued them out of this war that was raging within them. And so this morning, I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe this morning it looks like healing. Maybe you desperately need physical healing from the Lord. And you need to pray, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come in that way in your life. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe you have a friendship that's fractured and needs to be restored. Maybe this morning what it means to pray your kingdom come is to bring that before him. And to ask him to do what you can't do, what you've been incapable of doing, what you have been unwilling to do in those relationships. Maybe you're struggling with finances. You know that Jesus can bring you peace. His kingdom brings peace, even in the face of anxiety. Or maybe for you it's deliverance out of that addiction that you've been fighting and waging war against year after year after year. And you are just drowning in guilt and in shame. This isn't about some theoretical abstract thing. This isn't about some metaphor for some vague sense of evil. Evil is real and it's personal and it's powerful. And we as followers of Jesus, we need Jesus to constantly bring us to that place where we realize that we have healing in his name, where we have deliverance in his name, where we can hear truth over the lies in his name. And so I just want to take some time this morning. I want to invite you just to close your eyes. And I want you just to take a few moments just in silence to consider your own life to consider the things that you are struggling with and the things that you are waging war with. Maybe for you it is something that you've just been overcome and enslaved to for a long time. And the reality is that this morning, Jesus, he wants to rescue you out of that. You're not too far gone. There's nothing beyond his reach, beyond his grace, beyond his mercy, beyond his love. And so, Lord Jesus, we we just ask in your name this morning that your kingdom would come in this place. That, Holy Spirit, that you would do the work that only you can do in, in our hearts, in the very core of who we are. 
And so I just ask, Spirit, that you would stir in us those things that we're maybe even unwilling to acknowledge in this moment. Those places where we need healing. These places that we need deliverance. You would bring to mind the lies that we've been believing. Things that just aren't true. Old wounds. And Lord, to be honest, that's scary. Lord, to stir those things up. But we know if we come before you, you are the one who has victory over evil and sin and death. And so we just want to bring those things before you because you can heal us and you can restore us. So Lord, would you just move in our midst this morning? Would you just bring those things to our attention?